My name is Athar Hussain and I'm the director of the Asia Research Center and on my left is Dr. Etesham Ahmed who used to be at the LSE then worked for a number of years at the International Monetary Fund and come back to us and has been working on tax reform in a number of countries including China and he's going to talk about should China revisit the 1994 tax reform. I think with this brief introduction I pass on to Thank you, Arthur. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I don't know how many of you know the significance of the 1994 tax reforms, uh, 1994 fiscal reforms, actually, because they were more extensive than tax reforms. Uh, what I want to do is to talk a little bit about why 1994 was such a watershed, why it was important in the scheme of things. Uh, it was actually very, very important uh, because it centralized revenues at a time when there was extensive decentralization on the spending side. Uh, it was pragmatic. It was a major change in the way uh, China has managed its affairs over 3,000 years, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it stabilized the economy and laid the foundations for the sustained growth we have seen. Problem is that uh, in 1994, uh, the Chinese leadership decided to move ahead with the reforms with incomplete instruments. And I'll talk a little bit about these instruments, both on the revenue side and the spending side, and in particular about debt and risk management. And these are some of the issues which they are now beginning to grapple with, uh, with the reforms, as we've seen in the last few years. I shall argue that it's time now for them to look again at the 1994 reforms despite the very substantial success they had at the time. Um, because they are, they are um, incomplete, and there is a change in the way governance is being approached in China now. It's becoming much more like a modern uh, market-based economy. So there is a need for uh, a deepening on the rev of reforms on both the revenue and the spending side, more importantly also for getting accountability at all levels of government and making sure that the lower levels of government, in particular the local governments, are much more accountable and able to provide public services, able to manage local risks and liabilities which are building up. And also there's the issue of what China does now with rebalancing its growth strategy, which was very much focused on the traditional coastal areas um, uh, until now. So it's not just tax reform per se, but it's a re rebalancing of the development strategy that one really needs to focus on going forward. And the reason that one needs a new comprehensive approach is that the business as usual no and also the incremental way of doing reforms, which is the way China has handled most of its reforms with the exception of 1994, will not work anymore. So let's talk a little bit about 1994. But in coming to 1994, one needs to go and think about the reforms which were initiated by Deng Xiaoping. Um, remember that the, Deng Xiaoping's reforms started in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, the start of the reform was, he told the peasants, pretend the land is yours, we'll give you international prices. That 
generated an enormous amount of uh, uh, investment and growth. And as far as the state-owned enterprises was concerned, they moved from a system of 100% profit taxation to a more reasonable tax system, uh, which meant that profits were being generated by local enterprises together with local governments. And that led to what uh, Chiang and uh, Weingast and others called uh, market-preserving federalism. This led to growth. Um, the problem was that um, revenues were being generated at the local levels. They were being collected at local levels. They were not going up to Beijing. Now, one has to step back, go back 3,000 years. For 3,000 years, China operated its uh, governance structure without a centralized tax administration. They did not have a centralized tax administration. The system was more like a feudal system where the governor would collect revenues, send something up to Beijing. That's how they continued to operate uh, un until uh, 1994. Now, with the Deng Xiaoping's reform and the fiscal responsibility system and revenue sharing, the revenues tended to be collected at the local level and stayed at the local level. They didn't have an incentive to give anything up to Beijing. Uh, and of course, that benefited the local governments. It was at the cost of Beijing. So the problem that they faced in the early 90s was one of uh, an inability of the central government either to do macroeconomic policy or redistribution. And at the time in the early 90s, they saw the dissolution and the breakup of the Soviet Union. This was seen as a huge problem. Um, what had happened was that the tax GDP ratio declined from 25% to less than 12% in the early 90s. The central government share declined to just under 30% from around 40, it was earlier in some years, had gone up to 50%. So basically, um, they had, the central government was unable to do very much in the early 90s. It was a crisis. An alarms bell were going, ar uh, going around uh, in the state council. What do we do? We want to avoid the breakup of uh, China as much. We want to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union. Um, what did they do in 1994? They created, for the first time in, in Chinese history, a central tax administration for redistribution and macroeconomic uh, growth. So this was a big bang reform. It happened all at once. And they replaced the contracting arrangements uh, with uh, local administration and central tax administrations. And uh, they brought in a centralized revenue mechanism which was built around the value-added tax and the sharing of the value-added tax, the sharing of the corporate income tax. And that brought uh, major resources coming back to the central government. Now, the political economy of this process was actually quite brilliant. Um, they told the provinces that uh, we will assure you 1993 levels of revenues before any of this kicks in. So there was a stop-loss provision. And then they brought in a sharing arrangement. And on top of that, they had an equalization framework. And the equalization was uh, equalizing revenue capacities and expenditure needs. It was like the equalization frameworks in the most modern economies in the world, in Australia and the Scandinavian countries, which look at both the revenue side and the spending side. They also brought in something which was very unusual. 
something which they call revenue returns, which was giving back over and above the equalization. The equalization would have been phased in over 15 to 20 years. But they gave back money to the coastal regions and where the monies were generated. And this was actually, again, a brilliant political economy um, construct, even though it had been criticized by some of our colleagues in the World Bank as being uh, disequalizing. And there's a reason why they did it. So um, another reason uh, that I think that the Chinese were very wise is that they disregarded advice from a number of international experts, including the World Bank, because again, the idea was uh, looking at, uh, at intergovernmental theory that you look at what each level of government does, and then you figure out how you're going to finance it. So it meant that you needed to sort out, if you followed the traditional Musgrave uh, prescription, you needed to fix your spending assignments. You, and this was again something which was being done in Russia. They were fixing the spending assignments. It was a big bang on the state-owned enterprises. And then together with that, they were looking at the uh, corresponding financing arrangement. In China, uh, and I, was, I have had the privilege of being involved with this process. I was there in Shanghai in discussions with the Chinese authorities and then the design of the transfer system. They said, no, we cannot wait to fix the state-owned enterprises. It will take time. We will not do spending assignments. So they postponed spending assignments and said, we have to fix the revenue side. So they reversed the order. And the reversing the order gave the central government power and the ability to conduct macro policy and redistribution policy. So they said, uh, we know what we can do now, and we know what we cannot do now, and spending assignments we are going to postpone. They also realized that they couldn't decentralize too much because they didn't have the instruments of control. The treasury instruments, the uh, budgeting frameworks were weak. So if you give too much in the way of spending authority, uh, budgeting authority, without the control mechanisms, you have a free-for-all. So there were good reasons why they didn't uh, follow the traditional uh, prescription, but focused on the revenue side in 1993, 94. So the idea, of course, if you're looking at it from a theoretical perspective, is you know the market-preserving reforms which Chiang and Weingas talked about were useful at the early stages of the reforms, but in more recent years they become a constraint. So really what one is looking at now is a transition from market-preserving federalism to sustainable fiscal systems and fiscal uh, approaches. And the political economy has always been at the heart of the Chinese. I mean, it's been absolutely marvelous the way they handle the political economy constraints. They looked at the uh, relations between the center and the coast. They looked at preserving employment and the reason why they went for the uh, disequalizing framework was really to protect the structure of investment and, and uh, growth and employment. And they, uh, the way the uh, market equilibrated was through the floating population. So in a sense, they allowed people to migrate and find the jobs, but the implicit guarantee for full employment was maintained. So the reforms in 1994 were focused on uh, just partial focus on the revenue side, uh, transfers, they did not do the spending assignments, 
and uh, the spending overall sustainability issues are now becoming uh, very apparent. So the re results of the reform, as you can see, what you had was a collapse in the revenue GDP ratio after 1994 it began to turn around quite quickly. Um, the VAT was, was the key element of the reform, and you know now they're back again at around 20%, which is uh, sort of average for low middle income countries, low middle income countries, not Latin America, because Latin America is around 35% of GDP. I'll come back to this issue. Uh, industrial countries are between 35 and 45% of GDP. The Chinese are around 20% of GDP. This constrains their ability to uh, essentially be a um, great power that they would like to be. But you can see it turned around very quickly after 1994. Central government share began to fall from around 42% around 1982 to less than, just about 22%. At the time of uh, 1993, this was crisis period. They brought in the reforms, and that's where they went up immediately to 60%, 55 57%. So immediately, the central government share went up. The central government was able to conduct redistribution policy and macroeconomic policy. So the effects of this reform were immediate. And ever it has, this ability of the central government has been maintained. So in terms of the success of the reforms, it's immediate. Both in terms of the ability of the central government to carry out macro policy and redistribution, and in terms of giving overall uh, greater resources uh, from the public sector for uh, all sorts of uh, infrastructure and other social spending. Um, but this is what the transfers look like. If you look at um, the equalization system that was set up and the revenue returns, and you plot it, it looks as if more is being given to the richer nations. And that's true. So this was actually criticized by our friends from the World Bank that you guys have got it wrong. Uh, what you're putting in place is a very regressive structure. It wasn't quite that. And the reason why it wasn't quite that is a fault. Um, what you had was uh, a composition of the old system. This is the uh, loan uh, stop loss provision. This is to provide the levels of revenues that provinces had in 1993, there was a lump sum given. This is 3%. The subsidy transfers are, again, direct central government provisions uh, and equalization. So in 2000, this was around 20%. Spe specific purpose transfers for central government objectives of 30%. But 50% was revenue return, money going back to where it was generated. And the reason why they did that was to protect employment and investment. They have to keep growth, they had to keep growth going at 8%, 7 8 and more, in order to employ uh, the labor which was released from agriculture and uh, 
they allowed them to move into, into the coastal areas. So in order to keep the employment and growth process going and keep the implicit social guarantee, social contract, they did the revenue return. So the revenue return wasn't disequalizing, it was to protect and provide, continue to provide uh, employment opportunities. But it's changed. The revenue return uh, has declined over time. This is the, the revenue return. It was 71% in uh, 1996. As I said, it was around 50% in 2000, and it's now down to 17% in 2009. And there is now much more in the way of the equalization revenue transfer. So one would expect that the shift over time, which is nicely phased in, is moving to a more equal redistribution of resources and pro providing the basis for what they are now calling a rebalancing of the growth process. This is beginning to do it. The earmark transfers also, which have been maintained at quite a high level, provides the central government the ability to build the interior, to build the infrastructure in the interior. So the rebalancing of growth is happening here. So if you look at it from a 20-year perspective, what uh, Zhu Rongji had thought of in 1993, 1994, 1993, we were with him in, in Shanghai. They set up the tax administration then with this in mind, that in the 20-year period, we will rebalance. We were able to uh, recalibrate the role of the central government, provide resources, and uh, more balanced growth. And if you look at what's actually been happening to the spending, and the change in spending uh, is that the decentralization has really continued on the spending side. Even though they've centralized on the revenue side, the decentralization, which was 70% in 2000, is now 80% on average. And for some items like healthcare, it's now almost 98% is local. For education, from 89% to 95%. From transportation, it's gone up to 77 from 66. And uh, the one thing that is going the other direction is social protection, which was almost 99% uh, in 2000, has gone down to 94%. And we'll come back to social protection because this is a key element of a strategy where you look at uh, perhaps moving things like pensions, unemployment insurance away from the lowest levels of government to uh, a greater. Uh, equalization and a greater central coordination. But what's been happening? What's been happening is that uh, the revenues ratios of, for the local governments have gone down, the spending has gone up. Which means there's greater pressure at local levels. The fiscal pressure at local levels has gone up. And this has manifested itself in uh, uh, fairly substantial tensions, the lower down you go. Problem is that the Chinese have five levels of government. And it's not clear what the lower levels do. There's overlapping responsibilities between the provinces, uh, <coughs> counties, uh, villages, communes, etc. So the question of who does what is not clear. So the, but there has been a telescoping of responsibilities with the 
unbundling of the state-owned enterprises, a lot of the responsibilities have gone from the state-owned enterprises for nurseries, healthcare, etc., etc., to local governments. So the responsibilities have gone up at the lowest levels. But the revenues are coming down from Beijing, and they first come to the province, and then they go to the next year, and then next year, and they tend to stick at the higher levels because the pressure is there. So the revenues are sticking at the higher levels, higher subnational levels, but the spending is going down. So the greater pressure, the further down you go. And what's happening is that it's not clear how the revenues within the provinces are being allocated, in some cases better than others. And the differences within the provinces may be as much as the differences across provinces. But that's something that uh, really has to be looked at uh, empirically. And uh, this suggests a research project that we're perhaps going to be working on. Some of the provinces are experimenting with three levels of government. Jiangsu is one. So the idea is to think through, if you're going to have three levels, whether you can get greater clarity both on who does what and how you finance it. So you can think, if you have three levels of government, you can think about giving the lower levels of government own source revenues or handles which they can use. So uh, really one needs to think about the own source revenues because without the own source revenues, you don't get accountability. And own source revenues is different from shared revenues. Shared revenues is like a trust fund. You have no control over uh, the rates, you have no control over the base. Own source revenue means that if you want to build a, a statue to the mayor, uh, you raise the rate of the property tax or any other tax handle you have, or adjust the base. So that the incidence or the effects of doing so fall on the local government or the, or the people who constitute the local government. That's why own source revenues is very important in getting accountability, not just on the revenue side, but in terms of the whole spending agenda. So that if you have to uh, link your spending with what you raise locally, you're more careful about how you spend the money. The money's coming from Beijing, you don't care. So this is a very important component of getting better governance at the subnational level, but you can't do it with five or seven. It's very hard to know which instruments to give which level. Three, you can begin to think through, like in the United States, like in uh, ad advanced countries, you have states, local, uh, and, then, then, uh, and then counties or, or local governments. The tax reform itself was incomplete. The, when the Chinese brought in the value-added tax, the, they brought in ta uh, VAT, which did not give input credits for investment. That's known as the production tax value-added tax. The value-added tax you have in the United Kingdom and in other parts of the world generally tends to be of a consumption tax. With, with a consumption type income tax or value-added tax, you get full credits and refunds for investment. That doesn't happen with a production type VAT. And a number of people said, well, why are you doing this? Because it'll, this will hurt growth. But my goodness, did it hurt growth after 1994? It didn't. Uh, it, the reason they did it was for it. And this has been reformed a couple of years ago. They moved from the production type VAT to the consumption type VAT in order to 
remove the distortion against sex flows. Because with the production type VAT, you don't get input refunds for uh, your capital needs. That hurts your export. Didn't hurt it too much. Because they kept uh, exporting at very high levels. But as the yuan began to appreciate, and has in the last three or four years, they have moved to fix the production type VAT and have moved to a consumption type VAT. Still not a full VAT because they already have, they had a um, business tax which belongs to local governments and they've not replaced that yet. That's on the, on, on the cards. So extending it to services still remains. They haven't done it because the business tax is a local tax. And taking away this last element of uh, substantial revenues from the local governments cannot be done unless you have another instrument. They don't have that yet. So again, they need to rethink by moving to a full VAT, you have to rethink about the instruments at the local level. And of course, this is not just instruments at the local level, but also thinking through the transfer system. How is that going to be managed? Now, this is the an idea of how much provinces have lost as a result of the move from the production type VAT to a consumption type VAT. This shows you that it's basically provinces in the middle that have lost more um, in, in percentage terms. Um, this is Shanghai here is the, is the richest province. Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin. They haven't lost that much. No, it's almost less than 10%. These provinces here have lost 25-30%. So this is in terms of the shares. Um, they brought this in without any compensation. So there is, with this reform, there is even greater pressure, particularly on these middle provinces. Most of these are interior provinces. So the need to rethink uh, the revenue sharing arrangements is very high, especially if the uh, intention is to rebalance the growth and make sure that the uh, interior provinces continue to have the resources to be able to provide infrastructure and public services. This is what would happen if they move from the current VAT to a full VAT, including services. Again, if you look at Shanghai, it's right here, Beijing, Tianjin, Tianjin would lose a little more. This is Shanghai. But again, the middle, it's basically the middle industrial provinces that would lose quite a lot. So again, moving from a, to a full VAT, including services, including, uh, and replacing the business tax, one has to worry about the middle provinces and the rebalancing. Haven't done it yet. This is again one of the issues. So what will happen to the full VAT reform, which they need, you need to think through either the sharing percentages or the design of the transfer system and or a combination. And uh, also think about how you're going to share because on a derivation basis, uh, it provides more benefits to producing provinces, whereas a value added tax should be on a consumption basis. And that, of course, hasn't yet been done. So at the moment, the sharing is on the basis of where the revenue is generated, 
That's hard to do. So basically, the, the basis for the sharing has to be rethought. Then you need to think again about how you're going to equalize among the provinces. You don't want to be giving back too much money to various generators. So with the full VAT reform, one has to rethink uh, the basis and the amount of uh, equalization. They've done well on the enterprise income tax reform. There was a difference between foreign enterprises, domestic enterprises, enterprises owned by local governments and enterprises owned by the central government. That's all been consolidated. There's now a single VAT, uh, corporate income tax rate and the, uh, the greater standardization of the base. And again, moving towards a common administration by the state, or state administration of taxation. And again, once you do this reform, which is de desirable, you need to think about simpler sharing arrangements and then linking that with the uh, equalization framework. Personal income tax reform. This is the major issue. Previously, they had left the personal income tax with local governments, but have now brought it back uh, to the center because that's a growing source of revenues. Incomes are rising, people are becoming richer, major source of revenues. So they have brought it back to state, or, uh, state administration of taxation. Uh, but the way they're sharing it is not, does not provide the own source uh, benefits that uh, accrue in, for, for example, the United States. The United States, states can dis determine how much they would like it to put on the central income tax in terms of a piggyback or in Canada. So they have to think a little bit about a piggybacking arrangement to give own source revenues to states or provinces or to, to municipalities. So really one is thinking a little bit here about the instruments that one can give and to which level. So again, you're really thinking of no more than three levels for uh, setting of rates Again, with administration by the state administration of taxation. So the SAT reform, absolutely fundamental in get, bringing China to a modern system of public finances. Agriculture. Because you found that uh, there was a greater pressure coming down to the very lowest levels, people or villages began to put in lots of fees and charges, which led to a lot of un unhappiness and strikes. And uh, um, in 2006, the State Council abolished all of these fees and charges. They were supposed to be replaced by central transfers. The problem is that fees and charges are under the control of the local government. Central transfers, again, if they come down from the, cent from the center through the provinces, then to counties, etc., then finally to the villages, take time. And they're not one-to-one. -one. It's not easy for the center to fully compensate for the loss of these types of transfers. So it has an effect of in, on incentives. And of course, once you eliminate this, uh, then it's very hard to put it back again. And there was a paper by uh, Arthur and Nick Stern in uh, Low G Way's book, uh, which was published in 2008, which shows that if you, you know, once you eliminate, you can't put it back. But Really what they need to think about is perhaps having a proper land tax with, uh, with a sufficiently high exemption limit to take care of the poorer farmers. 
they're just thinking about property taxes. Is an experiment which has been brought in in Shanghai and Chongqing, two different experiments. Um, it's not yet a property tax per se. They're just thinking about it. But this again is a major source of revenues which they could think about uh, going forward. And if you want to keep, if they want to keep uh, central legislation, they can do that. It's common in in uh, unitary states, and say that municipalities or towns would be allowed to put a tax of, say, between 5 per thousand to 20 per thousand, uh, depending on what they want. This is quite standard. Uh, but leave it to the local governments to decide where they want to put it within that, uh, within that band. So that there's, no, uh, there's no race to the bottom. There's a minimum. And there's no distortion by making it too high. So there's some flexibility can be given. But in order to do that, they need to have uh, a proper cadaster and management of the, of the land records. And that work is underway. And also you need, let me come back to this, because you need a property tax or you need some source of own revenues if you're going to go for borrowing. If you're going to allow borrowing and you're going to have ratings, you're going to have to allow local governments to repay their own debts, which means they have to have some access to revenues that they can call on on their own. Without that, it all goes back to the central government. They say, we can't, we can't raise taxes, and Beijing will pay, or whoever uh, is responsible eventually uh, will, will, will carry the can. But in order to get accountability for borrowing, and the borrowing issue now is becoming very important because even though they're not allowed to borrow, they are borrowing. Um, thinking a little bit about the carbon tax uh, this and green taxation, um, there's been a lot of uh, talk in China about bringing in green taxes. And there's a proposal in a paper that Nick Stern and I wrote for India, uh, which looks at... Uh, a carbon-related excise to address externalities and pollution, and of course uh, could create resources for industrial restructuring. And uh, but again, this requires that the central government do it, so that local governments don't uh, don't play games with each other to attract industry uh, by reducing uh, the carbon tax. So in order to minimize the, the uh, distortions across provinces, it's probably better to have this managed, <coughs> set, and administered by the state administration of taxation. So the agenda for tax reform is a long way to go. You need to consider the business taxes in a value-added tax mode, rethink the revenue sharing, think about uh, carbon taxes, Think about own revenues at a subnational level for accountability, options for provinces, uh, and the third tier, third tier movement towards the property tax and the land tax, and to get better accountability, especially at the lowest tier. Accountability at the lowest tier is a problem now in China. So, in, if you're thinking about greater, better governance, not at the provincial level but at the county level then one has to think about the own source revenues. But if you look at what's been happening, this shows you the regional fiscal pattern. It shows you, uh, this, this is per capita income. 
was Shanghai is way out there, this is Beijing and Tianjin and the other provinces. So if you look at the revenues, own revenues, they're along here. These are the own expenditures and of course Shanghai and, and Beijing have higher own expenditures. But if you look here, you also see higher expenditures per capita in Tibet, Qinghai, uh, and uh, a few other in, 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 uh, in Qinghai and Xinjiang. So it shows that the, equ the equalization framework is working. They are redistributing. Not as much, I mean here, the higher spending in, uh, in Shanghai is out of their own revenues. And in Beijing, it's out of their own revenues, higher own revenues, higher own higher incomes. But here, when you look down here, this is the equalization framework. Both the equalization plus the special purpose transfers, which is central government transfers. So the total spending here is, is higher per capita because of the transfers. And this shows you the breakdown uh, again. This, in Shanghai, it's high because of pension payments. It's very high costs. They have, uh, they don't have, they don't have national pooling for pensions in China. It's, it's uh, either local or, in some cases, at province level. So high expenditures on pensions, of course, also higher on health. But then, if you look, if you come along here, uh, you also find uh, you find higher spending uh, in Tibet higher cost of provision in Tibet for education, per capita. So again, the equalization framework is working because the equalization uh, framework builds into it the cost of provision of public services at a given level of, uh, of revenue generation. So again, if you look at this picture, you find that uh, the equalization system is actually beginning to work. Pension reforms, uh, Arthur has done a lot of work on this. Uh, uh, we were together in, in China in the, in the 80s. Um, uh, early on, they said it's not a problem, but then suddenly they realized this is a problem. Aging is a problem, and pooling is a problem. There's a mistrust of lax uh, collections, uh, even amongst other cities and other regions within, within provinces. So. People don't want to allow uh, their own revenues, which are collected for their own pensions, to be dissipated in other regions. So maybe this is a case here of, uh, and certainly not for, uh, to be used for other provinces. But remember that the demographic profile along the coast is, looks like Japan, or even worse than Japan, in terms of the dependency ratio. But in the interior, in, in Tibet, and. Uh, um, Xinjiang, etc., is like Central Asia, very young profiles. So, if you're looking at uh, the young thing for the poor, for the old, on, in a, on a pay-as-you-go basis, it transfers from the poorer to the richer regions. So that's the other reason why they're hesitant to centralize the revenues and the pooling. But there may be a case for centralized collection. Maybe pooling at the provincial level in the next five-year plan. It's still envisaged in the five-year plan. Could this be expedited using the state administration of taxation? Brazil has done that. There's no reason why China should not. Because if 
Shanghai is worried that others will not collect it pro properly, give it to the state administration of taxation. Let them do it. And uh, that would address credibility as well as regional resource. Of course, one needs to think about the provincial pools and the use of the provincial pools for borrowing. This is what's happening. So one needs to think about perhaps if there are provincial pools of local bond markets. Um, again, spending is likely to be higher in the coastal regions, as we saw, and in uh, remote, uh, po sparsely populated regions. You get a U-shaped cost curve in terms of need. But there is a significant uh, agenda on the spending side. Responsibilities for basic health care, for basic education. Uh, and what one is going to do with national standard. Who pays for national standards? They're talking about nine years of schooling. Who pays for it? Who pays for the schools? Will it be the central government? So to the extent to which some of the spending is mandated by the central government, they should pay. Otherwise, the equalization framework should kick in. And as I said, the equalization framework is largely adequate and is uh, equal to uh, the best practice around the world. The, the basically improved on the Australian model, but in Australia, the equalization is funded out of all of the AT revenues, which go back to the, to the states. That's a possibility in China, but they probably don't want to give away so much money. Also, they need to think about sub-provincial issues. How do you equalize within provinces? Or do you equalize at all? It's not a problem that's been faced yet. Or should the central government equalize to, to the third tier? Give some money to the provinces for their own equalization and also equalize to the third tier. That's a possibility. That happens in Indonesia. But it would be very hard to do in China, so given the size of the country. It's an option, but it's not yet, uh, not yet uh, sort of put in motion. It could be part of the options that they consider in looking at the overall framework. What they have done a lot of work on is budgeting. And you know, we went again with the IMF, we were talking to the Chinese about budget systems, and they said, oh no, we're different. We don't have to do worry about this. Then they called us in 1996, the IMF, and said, well, we have a bit of a problem. So what's that? They said, well, you know, the central government responsibility is to build grain silos. Yeah, what's the problem? Well, we give the provinces the money for the grain silos, we don't see any grain silos being built. That's the problem. So we don't know where the money is going. Aha, we said, now you come, now you realize what we said, that you need a budget system, and you need to track where the money is going. And what they've done in the last 15 years is work on the budget system. They've implemented a budget classification system, which proved exceedingly difficult to do, which meant that you had standardized budgeting and reporting requirements for all government agencies. And a lot of government agencies didn't want to do that. Defense, even the Planning Commission didn't want to do it. They've done it. So standardized international standards on the way you budget, on the way you track your budgeting, on the way you keep your monies. Modern tradition is that all government monies are kept in one pot called the Treasury Single Account. If you have a Treasury Single Account, you know what money goes in, what money goes out, when it goes out, who it goes out to. 
It minimizes the scope for litigation. That's the treasury single account. What China has done is to set up a treasury single account at the center, and each province has their own treasury single account. Subnational government feeds into the provincial's treasury single account. And this works if you have no other bank accounts. Now, what they have been doing over the last few years is extra budget, off-budget operation. Government agencies uh, have cars, they rent them. They have buildings, they put on hotels. So there's a lot of money which has been generated by different items and going into different parts. What they have done this year, and it remains to be seen if it works, is to shut all these bank accounts. So only allowed, government uh, is only allowed to spend of the treasury single account. So if this extra and off-budget operations had been el eliminated, then that's a major reform. But it limits and removes the degree of flexibility at the provincial level, at the local level. Because then everything is on board. You can't, you can't play games. This is a major reform. Huge reform. It's happened now. And it gives greater MOF uh, oversight. But I tell you what it's doing. It's, uh, it's causing monies to flow elsewhere. So tightened up, but there is flexibility and, and things are going, uh, you know, water finds its own way. And the water finds its own way through uh, local government borrowing, even though they're not allowed to borrow. And I'll tell you why. So you have an improvement here on the governance structures. You're not allowed to borrow. As I said, the, the, uh, let me just summarize here on the treasury single account. Fully implemented at the central level, 36 provinces, 327 pre prefectures, 2,500 counties, districts. Now have the first single account. GFS, Government Financial Statistics Standards 2001 of the IMF, fully implemented. Off budget have to be declared from 2011, no off budget operations. This year on with no off budget operations. So greater transparency and control. But you have the Urban Development Investment Corporations, which have been there since 1992, to provide funding for investment. Local governments don't have own source revenue, so where do you find the money for investment? These guys borrow from the local pools that are sitting there, money sitting there. So they're tapping them through the Urban Development Investment Corporations. So they're borrowing, but they're not allowed to borrow. This is very, con very convenient, but it's a problem. There's an estimate that 30% of GDP, 30% of Chinese GDP, is sitting in off-budget local liabilities in, in, uh, in 2010. It's a major problem. Land leasing, bank loans are securitized on land and property. 90% of infrastructure is being financed through this way. And what happened in the last two years MOF issued bonds on behalf of local governments to give a fiscal stimulus. Major in, in, a major expansion of credit. $17 billion 2008, $62 billion in 2009, $14 billion in 2010. Who is going to pay for it? Local governments don't have all sorts of revenues. It's a problem. It's a problem that they're waking up to now. So, 
these UDICs springing up all over the country. Some are better managed than others, according to the IMF. But the MOF, the People's Bank of China, and the CRBC need to build a database of risks and liabilities. And that's something that I have recommended in 2004. They're doing it now. You need a register of risks, and you need to have credit agencies looking at all of this liability that is building up. It's a time bomb. They're sitting They've just hired uh, credit agencies to do uh, the risk assessment in 10 provinces. Just So you're sitting on a time bomb, uh, but you have to fix the budget law. Budget law says they can't borrow, and yet they borrowed so much money. How are you going to hold them responsible? And you need to link all of this borrowing to local priorities, not just to use it on infrastructure and everyone building the same type of factories or useless roads or useless airports springing up all over the country. You need to look at the operation and maintenance. You need to look at how this infrastructure is going to be maintained. You've got to look at whether or not this is a good quality infrastructure or not. You have the earthquake in Chengdu, in, in, in Sichuan, the old buildings stand, the new ones fall down. So there are issues about how much, how effective some of this newer spending is. And you need to have own source revenues at the margin to be able to pay back some of this money, to be able to be held accountable and to have a hard budget constraint. Local governments, subnational governments in China don't have hard budget constraints. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have resources. They're borrowing. Borrowing liability eventually will go to Beijing. So is a problem. And you need to provide information to the market and monitoring at the center, the rating agencies. And you can do this in an asymmetric manner that Shanghai and Beijing, Tianjin, have very modern uh, budget frameworks and good people. They can do this all. And they can also set up a tax administration from Qing. They're already experimenting. They can set up their own source revenues and go for a full, fully modern local government system in Shanghai and Chongqing before the others do. They should do it as an experiment. China is good at experimenting. It can be done asymmetrically. So that's why you need a new comprehensive approach, not just on the tax side. It's to look at taxes, what you spend on, how you manage the monies, how you finance it, how you manage your debt. So all of these things are part of an integral package. This is why you need to come back and look at it as a coherent reform. So you need to have adequate sources of revenue in relation to what you're going to be spending on, in relation to your responsibilities at each level. First thing is to de define how many levels you're talking about. Three, five, seven. And then look at own source revenues. And then if you don't have all appropriate source revenues, your deterioration so in service delivery, off-budget revenues, and, uh, and fees and charges which are discriminatory. You see all that happen the last few years. And recently they're beginning to tighten. What you also have seen happening when you have that imbalance is indirect borrowing. This is insidious, this has been happening. So the consequences of an imbalanced system are all of these things. And all of these things are happening. And they can see it happening. So the difference between 1994 and now 
is that the instruments that they needed were not there in 1994. Instruments that they need now are all there. You just have to put them in place. The basic instruments are there and can be adapted quite quickly. So have the 1994 reforms run their course? Yes. This, they did they served China very well. Jurongji was very pleased with the reforms. But it's not adequate. Uh, decentralization may be too much for the basic provision of services and benefits like pensions and unemployment insurance. Maybe they can't handle it. Local governments are incapable of handling these types of risks. And if you're thinking, if China is thinking about middle advanced country status, which it is, then it needs to look at it in terms of the welfare state that they are creating and have created, how it's being financed, looking at the education requirements, looking at health requirements, and looking at the center vis-a-vis -vis the lower levels of government. And what you see now, as I said, was a telescoping of pressure at the lower levels and major subnational liabilities and now need to rebalance the growth as well. But if you look at it in terms of China as in, in relation to, say, the advanced countries, in, uh, France, Germany, Japan, Sweden, Canada, United States, Russia, and you look at the revenue GDP ratio, China is way behind. It's got up to 20% of GDP. All the OECD countries are above 35%. In middle income, Latin American countries are above 35%. Brazil is 38%. Bolivia is 39%. Argentina is 34%. That's revenue to GDP. Chile is 28%. Market-oriented Chile. And what do they spend it on? Uh, where, where do they generate it? If you look at goods and services, China is doing very well. VAT is working. It's collecting as much as uh, many countries. Of course, the rate structures are matter here, but it's getting 10% of GDP in the value-added tax and on the goods and services. Very good. Much better than other developing countries. The big difference is income taxes and major role gap here on the income taxes. You look at the spending side, education and health, really not commensurate with uh, advanced countries. So there's a gap on the health side, there's a gap on education. They need to spend more on both. And in order to do that, they're going to have to work on the income tax. But growing incomes, they should be able to generate more incomes. And by giving the local governments a piggyback arrangements, they'll be better able to generate the revenues. So, next stage of uh, interlocking reforms, as I said, it has to be a package. The consolidation of the income tax has happened. The corporate income tax have done that. Personal income tax, they need to do more. Value-added tax, they're going to move to consumption base, which is going to lose some revenues. So the additional revenues will come from the personal income tax and local taxes. So these two sources, this one also giving tax handles to local governments, this going directly to local governments. So two major areas for additional revenues, both involving local governments. On the transfer side, the issue is whether revenue return is obsolete. It is. Now the equalization framework is sufficient to provide for all sources, all types of uh, provinces. 
and you can supplement that by direct transfers to individuals, or in extremis, you can think of central government equalization to a third tier cities or municipalities. Budget treasury reform is almost complete, but you need a new budget law. The budget law doesn't, is, is, is from the old era, it has to be redone. Allowing local governments to borrow and to make sure that the risks with the investment funds, the risks with local government borrowing are taken into account and managed with full information. So this needs to be done for design, oversight, monitoring, and management. So that's very, very, very important. That's where the reform needs to go. So to summarize the rebalancing agenda on the spending side, uh, pensions and unemployment insurance reforms are incomplete. Arthur, myself, uh, Tony Atkinson, and others were in the mission in 1989. Issues still haven't changed. These, still, these things still need to be done, haven't been done. Social spending and training, major needs there. Infrastructure gaps are being closed. Permitting uh, interior provinces to produce and export so they do not need to keep employment uh, up in the coastal areas. So that's happening. Environment and climate change will require financing, which could be financed through a green tax. Transfer design, there's an agenda there that need to allow. It's well designed, um, they allow it to work. Um, should you have equalization at sub-provincial level or should central government uh, guide the provincial equalization. Those are issues that need to be done or thought through. And what happens to the very poorest, most vulnerable, the minorities? Central government has to be continue to be responsible because you can argue that in most countries, the most vulnerable people are not high on the preference functions of local officials. So Therefore, if anyone is going to look after them, it would have to be uh, the central government. So they'll have to think of programs for the central government, for the, the minorities. They have that already, and it'll just need to be maintained and made more efficient. So subnational provincial reforms, uh, fiscal reforms, you need to have better linkage between the spending and taxation for greater efficiency and accountability so that there is no leakage at the subnational level and think about which instruments uh, are going to be used, piggybacking on the VAT or the, or the personal income tax and piggybacking on the business tax and readjustments to the transfer system. So that's part of the agenda. And on risk management, as I said, you need a new budget law, formalize local borrowing with stringent conditions so that if counties, cities, provinces, are unable to meet their liabilities, that they will be put out of business, taken over. Control boards, like uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., had a control board for a number of years. You need own source revenues for that. And certification by credit agencies. You need better monitoring, coordination of information, and monitoring of risks, because I think the greatest risks going ahead in the medium term are the subnational liabilities which are built up enormously without any firm handle as to magnitudes and likely uh, 
likely uh, uh, probabilities of uh, default. So, uh, as Arthur said, uh, this is uh, an agenda for reform. It's not just taxation. The agenda for reform to replace 1994 is the full gamut of instruments from what the local governments are doing to how the revenues are being allocated, how it's being managed, how risks are being managed, how the transfer system operates as a coherent whole. I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very much for very comprehensive and illuminating presentation and obviously lots of questions which arise from this presentation. So the floor is now open for questions and comments. Yes, uh, my name is Paul Kuchy. I'm a, a master's student in international political economy from the University of Warwick. The, I guess because uh, it's something about my subject, I got uh, probably two questions. First thing is, uh, yeah, after uh, the global financial crisis in 2008, actually, the uh, Chinese central government provided uh, a big package of market stimulants. Uh, it was a uh, full trading RMB. And uh, wow, so the result is uh, that uh, after a couple of years, uh, uh, overspending. Uh, the local government spending and the relaxing uh, lending from the banks, the central banks, actually the inflation in China is an emerging, it's an emerging problem. It's more like threatened to the stability of the society rather than the problems of the taxation and the uh, equalization. So like, uh, what do you think at the moment, at the present, the priority? for the China's like, monetary policy and physical policy. That's my first question. The second question is, uh, some uh, critics uh, to Chinese uh, political and uh, financial reform side, uh, uh, the, 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 the Chinese local governments, they got, uh, they, their reform basically is uh, selling, uh, selling the government's assets. In the very beginning stage of reform, they sell the state-owned uh, companies. And then they sell the, the land to the property developers. developers. And then and the, they got no money, they got no revenue. And then the collapse of the, uh, the, 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 the risk of collapse of the authority. That's a oh, <coughs> comment on some kind of critiques. Should, should we take a few together? Yeah, okay. Any more? Well, let me start with your second question. And in, indeed, uh, the issue of assets is <coughs> what I was pointing to. Local governments have been relying on sale of property and now mortgaging uh, assets to raise revenues. And you can only do this uh, uh, for a certain <coughs> period of time, which is why the issue of getting own source revenues, proper own source revenues for local authorities is very important. And that they should not be allowed to just sell anything, everything and spend it all in, uh, you know, without regard to overall sustainability. I mean, this is, again, one of the reasons why I think the Chinese government is now aware that they have to do something about the problem. It's becoming unsustainable.
Well, you see, they're already borrowing. They're already borrowing, and they, they're using uh, property as collateral. The issue is you should only be allowed to borrow if you meet the preconditions of borrowing, which is that you have your own source revenues, and you can rely on your own source revenues to pay back the loans. At the moment, they're borrowing, even though they're not allowed to borrow, and there is no accounting for it. So if you are allowing Shanghai to borrow, and I can tell you, in Shanghai, Borrowing is just incredible. I mean, when I looked at the sub-national provincial risks, did an IMF World Bank mission, 2004. Uh, there was one company in Shanghai that has also built the uh, Maglev, which is from Pudong Airport to nowhere. You know, you, you get into it, it goes very nicely, and then you get off, and it, you say, well, where am I? So, how do I get to Shanghai? It's a problem. It doesn't go anywhere. It's, it's a very expensive, tra uh, very fast train to nowhere. Uh, th that company had borrowed 1% of Chinese GDP. That it was owned by the Chinese, by the Shanghai Communist Party. And it was responsible for the of physical infrastructure. They're not going to pay that back. The maglev is not making any money. It's, making, it's, it's a maglev from Pudong Airport to the middle of nowhere. It's losing money hand over fist. Sorry? Yeah, but I, I got out at Luyan Station and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I needed to get to Shanghai. <laughs> but, you know, if the Chinese uh, people who uh, were using it could get into the metro and uh, knew where they were going, but, you know, a foreigner with suitcases, you get out of the station, you're dead. <laughs> you have to negotiate with the taxi driver who says, now, can I, how much, 500 yuan to <laughs> piece of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the question is, you know, they've spent a lot of money on the maglev. Is it... Yeah, it's a question of, uh, by own revenue, I dis I'm defining it slightly differently. I made the distinction between shared revenues and revenues where you can control the rate. They can't control the rate on any, any tax in China. So if you have a problem or if, you know, uh, uh, Shanghai runs into difficulties, there's no tax it can say, well, I'm going to raise the tax on property or I'll raise my personal income tax to pay it back. So all the taxes are determined by Beijing, and if you have a problem, the problem then goes to Beijing, because you cannot pay it back. You have no recourse to own source revenues, additional to what you have as you share. So that's the sense in which they don't have no local government has real own source revenues. And in order to get real own source revenues, you need a reform of the tax assignments. So whether you go for a piggybacked income tax or you go for proper property taxes. They're experimenting in Shanghai with the property type. It's not yet, they're not yet able to set the rates or to do it on a sufficiently widespread basis to give them a significant source of money. It's not yet, it's at a very uh, early stage. So I think there's some ways from, from being able to, though Shanghai I think can do it quite quickly. 
they have the people, they have they know about these things, they have the records. Uh, so I think Shanghai will do it or can do it, Chongqing, Shanghai, Beijing should be able to do it reasonably quickly, you know, within a year or two. Others may take time. That's why I said, you know, you can begin it on an, on an experimental basis, asymmetric basis. Those that can qualify can borrow. Those who can't, you just carry on the way you are, but with greater control of the indirect borrowing, because indirect borrowing has just gone out of hand. Uh, nobody knows the magnitudes. Uh, and especially this comes back to your, your uh, earlier question. The stimulus has led to major expansion of credit, which is leading to, you know, sort of inflationary pressures. Indeed, that is the problem. Uh, and they've cut back, and the BBC is beginning to raise rates now to uh, use monetary policy now to offset, put the brakes on the spending uh, or the credit expansion because of the uh, of the economic crisis that they've come through. And I think China is, will come through it much more unscathed than the United Kingdom and, or the United States. Uh, quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two, and maybe quantitative easing three and four as well, the United States, but still not yet out of the doldrums. But China you know, is still continuing to grow at a reasonable rates, so there's no need to carry this stimulus forward. But what is urgent is re calibrating the local public finances. Because unless you do that, they can continue to run arrears. What sanction does the central government have if Shanghai runs arrears, doesn't pay the wages or pensions? Shanghai, uh, Beijing will have to pay. Or, or suppliers, for that matter. So you have the indirect borrowing through the UDICs, these Urban Development Investment Corporations. You've got indirect borrowing through uh, enterprises that you own and, and are not really classified as, as local government uh, activities, but are actually your captive sources of revenue. So that's, again, very, very dangerous. So in a sense, what you have are, even though it's supposedly a very tight system, you have enough loopholes there for local governments to be able to get around it to create, create major macro problems. And they're really facing, and you know, we warned them in 2004 that the, this local government borrowing will be very problematic for you. And I think uh, they understood it, but haven't really uh, taken sufficient action. So really for the next government coming in in a couple of years' time, having a set of options to deal with this issue is very high on the agenda. How do you get greater accountability and better governance at the subnational level so that you don't actually go about uh, uh, borrowing uh, from your own banks and so on, leading to major leakages, uh, not necessarily corruption, but you know, of course there's a possibility of, of uh, all sorts of uh, rent-seeking behavior because there's no accountability. I mean, um, you know, they removed the mayor of Shanghai, they shot a governor or two, that helps, but uh, you know what you really do need is to is to have a system that uh, prevents these um, tendencies from from being um, uh, from coming into being and becoming such a problem. And they have become a problem now, which is why it's no longer possible to 
you know, sort of carry on and do marginal reforms. Since 1994, they've done a lot of marginal reforms, tinkering around with the personal income tax, with the corporate income tax, with the budget system, the treasury system, you know, sort of minor reforms. They're not minor reforms, they're major reforms, but it hasn't been what I called in 1994 was a big reform. It was a big bang. It was a major departure from the past. It's a major departure of 3,000 years of Chinese history. But it was again asymmetric. We were sitting in Shanghai. And all the provinces signed on to the state administration of taxation taking over the central tax functions, except for one, two actually. Does anyone know which provinces said no? Do you know which provinces said no? Uh, the, the two provinces that said no, one was Hainan, and the other one was Shanghai. Hainan, they were able to browbeat. Shanghai, Jurongji said, okay, you please carry on, uh, but please collect it for us. So it shows a really, uh, the pragmatic nature of the Chinese leadership that Shanghai was able to continue with Shanghai Tax Administration administering state administration of taxation work. So still continues to this day. It's Shanghai administration for uh, central administration. Please, your question. Uh, from 1994, uh, uh, the outcome of reform is that uh, uh, reviews have been contributed to central uh, government. Uh, to your speech, uh, uh, I think the main reason is that uh, local government together this share of tax. But uh, as we know, in China, the uh, local government uh, besides uh, besides uh, budget re reviews, uh, they have uh, off budget reviews and off institution reviews. Uh, I think uh, this can balance this spending. What do you think about it? Yeah, I think they have been using off budget uh, revenues, and uh, this is why I mentioned the reform from 2011. They've stopped it. If you look at the regulations from the Ministry of Finance, they've stopped off budget operations. So, you know, I mean, some local governments will still have these sources, but they will, they will be legal. Uh, so, you know, from, nine, from 2004, you had to declare all off budget operations on the budget. You had to put it there. So you had to declare it so that Beijing knew exactly how much you were getting from uh, renting out your cars or uh, putting up hostels or restaurants, etc., etc., which is what they did. But from this year, it's stopped. Whether they, if able to make it stick, I don't know. I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, but of course, these off-budget revenues don't go into budget operations. They go into people's pockets, or they go into, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know where they go. <laughs> But Beijing doesn't know where those monies go. So what they want is to stop that, have proper sources of own revenues, and then proper spending circuit, which is approved by local uh, local councils and by by the Ministry of Finance. So it's still a unitary state. Um, and I think what they now have and they lacked in the past was full information. Now they have information because if you're able to close down your bank accounts. Everything has to be spent from the treasury single accounts. They have full control. So now they have the me mechanism to control. Uh, whether they're able to do it, uh, that's a political economy question. You know, Shanghai 
insists on doing it there's very little Beijing can do but that's why you need to have the instruments for Shanghai to be able to use themselves and accountability mechanisms and also market discipline so I think the proposed reforms will provide the basis for better decision making and not that you know you have some monies that go into people's pockets and people are happy but that are actually spent for education and public services and uh, so on so infrastructure which is what the need is there is just another link you see when we talk about taxation we normally assume that the government is not a significant owner in the Chinese case government is a significant owner obviously it differs from different levels each level of government unto county level actually owns enterprises not only that because urban land in China is state property with this state property the lease revenue accrues to the government to the local government so in some sense you know most of urban infrastructure in China has been financed and which has been considerable through land leases exactly you know if you look at Shanghai yes the leasing of Nanjing Road actually yielded enough revenue first few years to actually rebuild the infrastructure in Shanghai city so part of the problem is not simply taxation but also the question of land and how to use land revenue arising from land leases because that's the major source of urban construction and whether it's in Beijing or in Shanghai and so as long as governments are significant owners the local governments have always some opportunity to actually switch the sources of revenue because the state-owned enterprise or state-controlled enterprise also provide certain services and revenue so that option will always remain open yeah I agree and uh, indeed there's a point as I uh, it said that most of the infrastructure has been financed yes. through the land leases the issue is that all of this has to be brought on budget is, is the first issue and then of course you need to have transparent alternative sources of revenues so that uh, there isn't then the pressure to keep utilizing uh, land uh, at the margin and therefore also there's an issue of uh, evictions and um, um, uh, which is sort of encroaching on the on the rural side now property tax yeah. reform is, is essential other thing is about social security tax social security actually collects a lot of money in China and the money collected through social security contributions risen very very rapidly but it's not regarded as a tax in China it's actually regarded as a charge and so other part of the problem is how to bring the social security system under unified control because still is it uh, state administration of taxes collects social security charges in some provinces and some cities but not in others at the moment is not centralized is no, no, no uniform collection system no no i uh, one suggestion i have and uh, i don't know how far they'll take it is to have sat do it you know this is the brazilian model if you have sat administer the the pension contributions then this problem of uh, lax administration in the neighboring 
district which has been a hindrance in many cases disappears it doesn't solve and then you can keep the money coming into your if you don't want the national pooling you can still have the money go to shanghai's account um but the administration then ceases to become an issue uh, then you can move to the next stage of the reforms yeah well that's what i want yeah. to get to the political economy the political economy issue is, is know, of course the question government doing it i mean chinese government is actually quite very powerful if it wants to do something it can do it there is absolutely no doubt about it the question is wh- why why there is no central government regulation to say that Sent uh, state tax administration and collect all social security taxes. I think they've and been doing. The reason yeah. is political, not yeah. economic, yeah. in the sense that the Ministry of Labour and Social Security is very powerful. Yeah, they don't just would not like it. Yeah, clearly. And they put up resistance. Sure. So, yeah. so that's really ultimately question is that there has to be sufficient agreement at the centre. Yeah, and I think it's the agreement will probably come through a package. the package makes it easier to compensate losers and make sure that um, you know the incremental benefits are shared equally oh well, i can go on but let let yeah, we should yeah we will of course we have an ongoing ongoing uh, discussion that yeah. system yeah. keep people occupied forever absolutely Okay. Thank you well, very much. Thank you, Rathan. And then again, thank the you. subject requires a lot of research and yeah, work. Absolutely. So let's. And in due course, this paper will be available on the website of the Asia Centre.